Our special guest today is Rick Marshall, the writer, editor, and comic strip historian that Bostonia Magazine described as America's foremost authority on pop culture. He was a comic strip editor of United Feature Syndicates, editor of the Marvel Magazines, writer of Disney comic books, founder of Nemo Magazine, Fantagraphics newspaper strip reprints, and Hogan's Alley Magazine with Tom Hengis, and writer of many history textbooks. Welcome to the Comic Book Historians Podcast, Rick. Thank you very much. It is an honor that you asked me on. You guys do a great job, and I appreciate being your guest. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Rick. I wanted to start with you at your very beginnings. Did you start out like most people who are into comics by drawing before you could even read? Yeah. My dad had, he was not a cartoonist, but he was a comics fan. And I thank God for that because, I mean, he was a real comics fan. I was born in New York City, and he would get seven or eight newspapers every week, including ones he'd get at the out-of-town newspaper stands in Manhattan. They don't exist much anymore. You know, he would read the New York Times and the local paper when we moved to New Jersey, the Bergen Record. But he would buy the New York News, the Mirror, you know, all the, the Herald Tribune, and mostly never opened them. But he would read what wound up being almost every comic strip being done then. And then he arranged, especially when I grew old enough to appreciate, and then he would make sure about this, but he would have a friend in Atlantic City, save the Atlantic City Press, which was only NEA comics, and friends in Philadelphia, save those two newspapers. So I was doomed from the start. That was the environment I grew up in. And when my father was young, he read and saved Judge Magazine, and he saved them. He had all the Judge Magazines from the 20s. And oddly enough, when we moved from a small brownstone when I was five, small brownstone in Queens, New York, to uh, a big house in New Jersey, which should have given him enough storage space, for some reason he thought he should de-excess a lot of the junk. So he got rid of all those judge magazines. So I always heard about Puck Judge and Life, but when I grew old enough to appreciate them. I had to search them out myself. And he would take me in every Saturday. He would go to Bookstore Row in New York, around Union Square, where there used to be like 125 used bookstores. They'd had street maps of these stores. And he would haunt them. He collected first editions and rare editions and just funky titles he discovered or remembered. And he would bring me and I would, that's how I got the bug for comics and old comics and musty, rotting cellulose fibers. It's <laughs> <laughs> like would perfume you, to me. Would you try to copy the pictures that you saw or in terms of you drawing, what were you doing with those? Yeah, thanks. He had, there were only a few books of the histories of comics in those days, Old Testament times I'm talking about, but there was the uh, Cartoon Cavalcade by Thomas Crave in 1943, the comics by Colton Waugh in 1946, and not much more. And he had those books. And yes, Jim, before I could read. Now, of course, I liked the comics we would get. And I loved, you know, Blondie and Peanuts and Beetle Bailey, Pogo. But I would copy the cartoons and strips from those old books. Happy Hooligan, all of Opera's stuff. I was drawn to the older stuff and the funny slapstick detailed drawing from the start. I don't know why, but even in, like I, was, I think I was in second grade, I made my own 64-page Happy Hooligan comic, all my own ideas and everything. And of course, it was crummy, but that's how much I was into it and how I was drawn to the 
gutsiness of that old humorous art form. Of the yeah. Well, that was your favorite, wasn't it? Hooligan and, and opera yeah. in general? Yeah, he's still my favorite of all the cartoonists. It never changed from that point to now. That stayed your very favorite? Yeah, that's about it. And it was something, you know, how do we explain these things? It's very hard to explain the uh, unseen neurons of our lives. But there was something about, of course, I discovered Little Nemo after a while and Crazy Cat after a while. And I got to know a lot of my heroes, the contemporary cartoonists. But even now, as a collector, when I come across an old magazine I haven't seen or original art, if it's something by Opper, and I have a lot of his originals on the wall. Okay, here's another thing. I just walk past, and if you know the Yiddish expression, I kvell. I just, I par <laughs> like There's something about his drawing style and the way he told stories that still is tops in my book. And the comic strips would not be today what they are now, I think, if it were not for his contributions. So it was important. What were the ones you were looking at? Because Peanuts was out at the, the time, both... In yep. the strips and in, in trades, Pogo as well, right? That's right, yeah. I was born in 1949, so we're talking about strips, really, that hit their stride in the in the mid-50s. So we've had a lot of golden ages, but newspaper strips, you know, that new wave, about 1950, Pogo, Peanuts, Beetle Bailey, Dennis the Menace, all new, all exciting. And I discovered them all and turned on to them for different reasons, of course, but you know, I, when I started drawing, I tried to copy Opera's style, but when I would draw for school papers or to uh, try to get into the school newspaper or something, Mort Walker, I figured, was the modern style. So I would draw his type of shoes and legs and minimalist, you know, drop the details. And I thought I was really in line with the moderns. It was Ketchum for me. I studied Dennis the Menace to try to get those pictures. Alex, what was yours? In the early 90s, I started reading just strips like Calvin and Hobbes. But I've read a lot of strips in the past from reprints over the past two years. One thing that I felt, I mean, I sort of thought it was a public duty to do strip reprints, the Seagar, you know, the series I've worked on, because it was shocking to me. It's not a special revelation, but, you know, when I thought about this popular art form, loved by millions, printed by the millions in every week, and yet because it was throwaway commerce, people not only didn't know the old classics, but had no opportunity to know them. Yeah, there was no avenue. I just thought that was stupid. So it was almost a mission with me to reprint a lot of those old strips and keep them alive. And well, I'm glad you did. A lot of my friends didn't know what I was talking about. I started a comics club in my neighborhood, in my school, kids who liked to draw. And it was just super nerdy. I mean, it was not only kids would like to draw and we'd get together and exchange our sketches and comment on them and everything. But because I was always into the history, I would give a little lecture each week to my friends about Happy Hooligan and the Yellow Kid and, uh, you know, all that stuff. And you also had an affinity toward the European stuff, too, it sounds like. I did as early as I discovered it. I sure do. The first one, as with a lot of us, maybe, but I lived in a little town close to New Jersey, a suburb of Manhattan. And there was a stationery store called Opticars. And they sold everything, you know, the old-fashioned soda fountain counter and all like that, a lot of magazines and newspapers. And in the back were uh, larger books and picture books and like that, a small room. And one day I walked in there and they had the six Tintin books that, Simon & Schuster, Golden Books, actually, their kids' wow. division, published. 
and it was new translations. It wasn't the British ones. They were eventually overtaken, you know, by the worldwide famous Anthea Shackleton translations. But and they were hardback, and it was like a revelation to me. I knew they were from overseas because he wore knickers and he walked into a pub saying hello to no one in particular and all this stuff that wasn't very American. And the quality of the drawing and a story 64 pages long, I mean, it was like a beautiful, rare grand piano fell on me. I, I remember that moment and I bought all the books. And uh, yeah, so that made me curious about European comics and I got into them. So, Rick, a lot of us grow up drawing comics and a lot of us enjoy talking about it. But, Alex, when did you own your very first piece of original comic art? Probably three years ago was my first original art. And now I have about 20 pieces, I guess. Okay, and so mine mine would have been sometime after law school. So, Rick, you probably know where I'm going with this. But how old were you when you owned your first original piece of art? Because that's the difference. All right. Well, it's a funny story, but Ben Franklin let me visit him one day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm older than anyone who's going to be listening to this. Now, when I was in second grade in New Jersey, for a brief time, Al Smith, who drew Mutt and Jeff, went to our church. And our pastor went to see him one day. The reason he didn't go to our church for long was, I think, because our pastor visited him one day and asked him to do a bunch of drawings for the bulletin. I think he said, the heck with this. But anyway, and he brought me along, and this was in Demarest, New Jersey. Al Smith was the cartoonist at Mutt and Jeff. And we spent an afternoon in the guest house. He had a couple buildings on his property, and that's where his studio was. And he looked at my drawing, and he was very complimentary, and we talked about everything under the sun. And before we left... Al Smith went upstairs, I said, so hold on for a second, and he came down with three pieces of original art. Now, two of them were his own, Mutt and Jeff's from 1957, pretty recent vintage. That's still my favorite period of his work. But then also a Mutt and Jeff original from 1927 by Bud Fisher. Nice. It was really Ed Mack. And the thing is about 30, 32 inches long. He drew enormous. And the New York World, his home paper, printed it in seven columns, I think, for a while on the front page. It was larger than life. And it was full of detail and cross-hatching and slapstick. And supposedly when people die, their lives pass before their eyes. The split second that I saw those drawings, my future life passed before my eyes. I already loved comics, but I was hooked on original art and hooked on collecting. I mean, I just knew. I was hooked. And if I had ever thought about it previously, Jim, I probably assumed that cartoonists draw <laughs> drew their strips of size that they ran in the paper. I, I didn't know. That did it for me. And eventually I had like 3,000 originals. I think I'm down to about 2,000 now. But I, that's my cat. Old manner, you know, the newspaper <laughs> strips, comic book art, political cartoons, illustrations and such. So you were 10 when you got this? Yes, Is that about right? About right. Yeah, 10 and 11, something like that, yeah. So within a couple of years, you're going off with Al Smith to the National Cartoonist Society meeting. And at that point, you meet everybody. Is that right? Yeah, just about. I mean, it was like dying and going to heaven. He, That's so amazing. <laughs> it, is, it is. And I was probably a little bit of a joke to those guys. It was this 10, 11-year-old kid who would talk about 
opera and out cult and Harry and all this. I mean, I didn't care what got me in, but Al brought me to the first meeting in 1961. And he was treasurer of National Cartoonist Society, so he had to go in early to be at the board meeting. So he brought me along, and I just sat there at the board table in the Lambs Club in New York. And the other board members filed in. Bill Holman, I think, was president of the NCS at that time. Dick Brown, who did Hein Lois and Hagar. And then I remember sitting there, this little nerdy kid, and from the hallway, from the dark room coming into our room, I saw this silver-haired figure with a face like being on Mount Rushmore, and it was Rube Goldberg, and I recognized him. And I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this was just great. So yeah, I met all my heroes that night. And then he brought me into other meetings, and so did Vern Green, who did Bringing Up Father, Harry Hirschfield, who I became very close with. I mean, all these people were so nice to me. That's great. It really helps. And in fact, Hirschfeld started taking you after he sort of filled in for Al Smith at some point, didn't he? Become another mentor? Well, he did. He would invite me. He had a building in the Channon building in New York, an office, rather, opposite Grand Central Station. And he had been there for decades. And there were two rooms, absolutely so piled high with papers and photos and originals that you could hardly walk in there. So, I mean, this was my conception of heaven. You know, it was better than the Dublin uh, Trinity College Library to me. And when I would visit Harry Hirschfield, he would – and remember, I was a teenager then, right? But he would close his blinds. I'm not sure why that. And he would tell his answering service on the phone to block all calls. And he'd lean back in his chair because we developed this friendship where he didn't ask me directly, but I knew he'd love for me to ask about the old days. So I would ask him if, you know, what opera was like as a person and would Milk Gross lapse into Yiddish accents? And, you know, was this cartoonist left-handed or right-handed and all <laughs> like that? And then when he would take me to National Cartoon Society meetings, he would introduced me as someone who made him remember people and remember events he hadn't thought about in 50 years. And that was kind of a kick that I could tickle him that way, you know. Did you meet Walt Kelly at the, you met him that first dinner too, didn't you? I think it was the first dinner, but I only met him once. After a while, I edited a pogo, but I only met him once and he was not sober, which I know I'm not the only person in the world who can repeat that testimony. And it was a great <laughs> frustration to me because he was a god too and i uh, you know i put him in one of the 16 cartoonists in this book i wrote america's great comic strip artist and walt kelly is i think the only major cartoonist we can talk about who has credentials in every field of cartooning he worked for disney you know he did comic books for years newspaper strips of course uh he still was doing pogo animation at the end he did political cartoons, so, you know, he had many – he looked normal, but he had many feet in many genres. Boy, I would have loved to have just spent at least an evening or an afternoon talking with him. But So now you were more than just reading these strips, though. You were also collecting comic strips. What drove that? Was that learning from your dad to do that, or was that some innate thing where you really wanted to just save everything? Well, I later found out that when my mother was carrying me, she was scared by a pack rat. <laughs> and I think that must, must have done something to my genes. I don't know. I don't think my father ever – well, he probably did encourage me to do it, but he didn't 
object to it. Now, most parents object to kids saving bubblegum wrappers and everything, you know. But he encouraged me. And as I said, he would arrange to have friends save the Sunday comics for me each week from far and wide. So the implication is save them and appreciate them. But he surely did encourage me that way. And then also when I was about that young, there was a story that was syndicated in newspaper Sunday magazine sections. I think Metro Sunday Comics did it. But anyway, like the New York News Sunday magazine is where we saw it. But a reporter did an interview with Ernie McGee, a legendary collector who lived in the Philadelphia area. And we had friends in Philly. And my father encouraged me to write him and ask. Yeah, everyone was in the phone book in those days. Very different time, you know. Even famous cartoonists. That's how I met Rudolph Dirks, by the way. I mean, to think that a legend like Rudolph Dirks would be in the Manhattan phone book. And he was 86th Street in the German section of Manhattan. But anyway, I found Ernest McGee, asked him if I could visit him. And I could. And that further propelled my collecting career because he had mountains and mountains of old, mostly Sunday funnies going back to the 1890s. And eventually I would buy from him and trade. And eventually after he died, I bought his his collection. His collection. Yeah. His house full of junk, yeah. Mostly Sunday comics, color comics, sections, and bound volumes. That's what he had. You were also writing for publications as a teenager about these strips? Yeah, gee, I forgot that. No, not for teenagers. There were a couple magazines for gag cartoonists that were a little bit pro zines, but also a lot about tips and new editors and all like that. But they would appreciate articles about the old days and the dead cartoonists. So I would write them. I just proposed it. And they said, yeah. Then there was a, a slick magazine, a terrific magazine called The World of Comic Art, published in California by a woman named Dorothy McGreal. And it only lasted, I think, five or six issues. Color cover, slick. I mean, the production value was high. And she had a lot of good writers. And I, out of the blue, asked her if I could write pitch articles and she said yes she was very supportive so do you know the magazine is that the thumbs up by the way yes i do actually oh okay yeah it was a great magazine and she encouraged me too so no fanzines then but wherever i could write and by the way once again honor to my father but i was really too shy to be doing a lot of this stuff but he would say, why don't you ask if you can write or do an interview with someone? You're meeting Roy Crane on our vacation. Why don't you interview him? You know, and I'm in the fifth grade. And, what are you but I don't know. How to... <laughs> and he would encourage me. He put, the, he put the questions in my mouth. And there were two ad zines back then, Collector's News and Antique Trader. And he would compose the ads Collector looking for Puck Judge Life magazines, Frederick Opera original art, all that kind of stuff. And he'd pay for the ads and put them in. So he really encouraged me. And I would have too chicken to do a lot of that stuff, probably, except for his encouragement. So you were precocious with some uh, nudging along from your dad as well. So you got started on this career, I mean, early. I mean, way, way earlier than most people get started on their careers. Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, it's a blessing that I did because... Well, for instance, every school vacation, I would go into Manhattan, sometimes alone, sometimes with my cousin, who I tried to get the same infection, but he had, he was inoculated, I guess. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I would, I'd go to the syndicates, all the syndicate offices that I learned through the back pages of Lawrence Larrier's Careers in Cartooning. 
And I would bring my sketches or ask if cartoonists worked in the bullpen like at King Features or whatever. Or just outright, I would ask for original art. Do you have any original art you could spare? I like to collect these. I'd like to copy the styles and techniques. And most of them were very generous in those days. So it was, I'd go in a Christmas vacation, Easter vacation, sometime during the summer. And United Features gave me, I think the statute of limitations <laughs> is over now, but would give me stacks of Peanuts originals and Tarzan McNaught and the Chicago Tribune Syndicate. I remember I went up to Hall Syndicate and the president was a woman, Helen Staunton. I think she pronounced her name Stanton, like the town of Virginia, I think. But she took a liking to me. And every time I came in, maybe she just thought I was an average teenage reader and she'd ask my opinions on stuff. But believe it or not, I mean, here was a kid with a runny nose going into newspaper syndicates. And she would ask, she'd show me some samples. She said, we're thinking of buying this strip or that strip. What do you think of this? So I saw Andy Cap before it came out in America. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I'd give her my opinion. Of course, I was very flattering, you know. And at King Features, they had a bullpen where some of the artists, like Frank Fletcher, would draw the Sunday bringing up father, but he would also do the rescaling or corrections or be laying the Bendy down. And Bob Dunn had a little office off to the side. He did, you know, they'll do it every time. And it sounds weird, but it's true that, first of all, all these people were so nice and generous with their time, but probably because it was I was a freak, I guess. <laughs> But they actually, you know, they said Aren't they we all. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, I hope so. They, they would say they were looking forward to my visits and what questions do you have? Can we help you with this? And then they'd give me not always original, sometimes uh, stacks of proof sheets and things like that. But it was all magic to me. And what you say about that time, if this had all happened 10 years later, well, I mean, in those days, if they didn't give their originals to Rick Marshall, they probably would have burned them. You know, a lot of artists didn't want them back in those days. You essentially saved those artifacts. And that's what I'm going to tell the judge when I'm hauled into court. <laughs> Rick, I'm the only other uh, cartoonist and animator in the group here. I feel like I have a lot in common with the things you're describing, but I'm really curious. You're a kid interested in drawing, not just in reading the comics. Did any of these guys give you any art pointers? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for asking that. And I still have these, but Al Smith, who did Mutt and Jeff the first notch on my belt, I'd show him samples, and I came up with strips and things. And he would show me the way he would have drawn it, a character from behind. And he'd say, Rick, look, the ear doesn't go that way. You know, he'd really give pointers that way. So did John Severin. I was blessed to grow up in the New York area where so many cartoonists lived. Oh, and wow. Severin had a studio in Harrington Park, New Jersey. And kids at school told me, because they knew I liked to draw, there's a storefront in Harrington Park, and the curtains are always drawn. We looked in, and there's a guy drawing pictures in there. So I thought, well, I'm going to check this out. And then I guess either Al Smith or Joe Dennett, who was a neighbor of Severin's in Norwood, New Jersey, told me he has a story. Anyway, I connected the dots, and I went over and introduced myself to Severin, who was very shy, even with a snot-nosed kid. And this was young. <laughs> it was before I drove. I'd take my, 
take my bike there and everything. But Did I, you have a lot of allergy problems as a kid? You keep mentioning snot nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my father was in the handkerchief business, so I think he set me on that path for a reason. But John frequently gave me pointers about, and one I just came across the other day, a page of how he draws hands, the fingers in different attitudes. And a lot of us, I don't know about you, Bill, but I have trouble drawing hands. A lot of artists do. And he would show me how he would do that. Vern Green also, who did bring up Father, he had a horse farm in Wyckoff, New Jersey. And he was, of all the cartoonists I met, he was the nicest guy, very warm and friendly. And he would have me come over if my parents would drive me, of course, with the idea, he said, would I mind helping him straighten out his collection? Now, he had a ton of original art because he always liked it. And when he was in the bullpen at King, he would rescue a lot of crazy cats and Cliff Sterrett, Polly and her pals and stuff like that. He had a lot of books, a lot of old books on cartooning and copies of the old cartoons magazine from the teens and stuff like that. And I finally figured it out. Could I help him straighten out his bookshelf and his papers and all like that? And I would. But after a couple Saturday afternoons, halfway through, he'd say, you know, if you want to come over and watch me draw, that would be fine. I think he wanted to teach me or ask questions or something. So I caught on to that pretty quickly. You know, he had done the spirit, not just bringing up father. So he was very versatile. And he gave me countless pointers so cartoonists would do that and i ate it up of course you know and i have to say hands are the toughest and my funny story about this is dean mulaney years ago was going through portfolios for eclipse comics and i remember hearing him tell a kid you call that a hand and <laughs> I, it really scared the crap out of me so one thing is a collector or so-called historian that I noticed because I would have trouble with this. By the way, I think most serious collectors and most comics historians are failed cartoonists themselves. I think this is vicarious motivation or interest. Ernie McGee couldn't draw. Art Wood was not a great cartoonist. Jim Ivey, God bless him, was had his own style. But I think that's part of what fuels our interest. As a collector or historian, one of the things I notice quickly, and Bill, what you said about hands too, is cartoonists who, going back to the 1800s, to illustrators who might otherwise be great at faces and moods and cross-hatching and all this business, but when you see that they often draw their figures with their hands in their pockets or their feet hidden by a bush in the foreground or something like that, you know that they didn't go to school or, <laughs> or flunked out of art school. <laughs> anyway, maybe. Now, no, I Rube, think you're right, actually. <laughs> Rube, uh, Rube Goldberg gave you some advice or a critique of your work as well. Is that right? You know, I'm starting to hate you there, uh, asking all these <laughs> embarrassing questions. No, it's not embarrassing. I don't mind telling this on myself. But, yeah, I met Rube at the meeting I told you about. And then I spent some time with him uh, after the dinner, and he was so nice to me. And I asked him if he could send – my father gave me a tip to go to that National Cartoon Society meeting with little slips of paper already made up with my name and address on them so I could hit up artists to either visit them or ask for original art. Okay. So I asked Rube if he could possibly send me something, and a couple of weeks later I got not only a Rube Goldberg original but from the teens – 
I mean, it was a classic inventions oh, yeah. thing. I mean, what more could you want, you know? And he inscribed it to Richard Marshall with best wishes for his cartooning career. <laughs> and then he said, P.S., this was drawn before your father was born. It was not quite, but still, I didn't send it back and ask him to correct it, you know. That's great. Well, a few weeks later, and he invited me to visit him. And a few weeks later, my father drove me in. Rube had a place on Central Park South, I think. Remember, it was raining that day, and we went up, and his studio was fantastic. He had Dean Cornwell originals, paintings, and T.S. Sullivan, pen and ink originals, and all on his wall, all this stuff. He looked at my drawings. This must have been, well, it was after that NCS meeting, but I brought up some caricatures I did of President Kennedy and some editorial cartoon about Castro. You know, I was really aiming high then. <laughs> and he looked at about half of them. I'm glad he wasn't on the Pulitzer Committee, you know, because <laughs> he looked at about half of the drawings and didn't finish looking through them. And then he tossed them back at me. This is in front of my father, by the way, too. And he said, oh, you can't draw. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh my I, God. Still, I still have kindly thoughts about him, and I got to know his son and everything, but he had just published a book then called How to Remove the Cotton from a Bottle of Aspirin. It was a book-length Foolish Inventions, you know, each page instead of each panel. And did I want this? I said, oh, that's great. Thank you. And he inscribed it to me. And stick with me on this. He said, to Richard Marshall, with best wishes for your future career <laughs> and in cartooning. <laughs> just best look on your future career. You know. And I'm just so grateful he didn't say in aluminum siding or cat food sales or, you know, something like that. So I was very conscious that he he pulled the string on that one, but it didn't deter me. But and yeah. I'm I'm sorry, Rick. I just love that story. So I, I had to hear it from you. <laughs> No, I'm teasing you on that. I don't mind telling that story. <laughs> well, do you think he said that to prod you to work a little better at your skill and your craft? Or do you think he was just a crazy old man? Bill, thank you for asking that. It did <laughs> prod me. I wanted to be better. I was more realistic about my shortcomings. But on his side of that coin, no, I just think he was a mean old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Just another Rube. Sorry. Just another Rube. Yeah, hey, Rube. Yeah. Rick, you had said that you established you're a big fan of, of Walt Kelly and Pogo. What about Crockett Johnson's Barnaby? Did you like that? I sure did. And I'll tell you what, I was going to mention this before about the question, did I save the strips and everything? Barnaby came out in a reissue around 1960 or something like that. The Hall Syndicate tried to revive it. Only lasted a few months. It didn't go, and most people don't even remember that. But he redrew the first story and then did a couple new stories, and it just didn't catch on. But I loved it. And that was one strip in my early days then that I did. I guess I was imitating the old Henry Holt books, but I did cut those dailies out. I pasted them three to a page. And Jim, my father worked, remember the old Thermofax? This is even before Xeroxes. My father made copies at his office, that brown, smelly paper, the old Thermofax. So he reproduced that comic book I created with the pasted strips. And I guess I drew my own cover or something. I did. I imitated, I tried to copy Barnaby in his style. Anyway, I sent it to Crockett Johnson, the copy. And otherwise, a typical fan letter, I love Barnaby. I'm even 
saving it as you see here. I'd be grateful for advice or whatever, and then asked for an original drawing. And he didn't send me a strip, but he sent me a reply on a postcard, but he drew Mr. O'Malley on the postcard for me. So I sure did like Barnaby, and, you know, that's a treasure to have Mr. O'Malley in his hand, a nice, encouraging note. It's typewritten on the postcard. You know, everything's so, with, so formal. With both of these, were you aware of the political satire aspect of these strips at the time you were reading them or did that come later i better be careful because bill's listening here um (laughs) (laughs) oh i sure was even when i didn't understand it and i frankly did because you know we're just talking about comics here but one of my comics and cartoons is not my only interest and of all the books i've written i've done books on other topics politics and country music and television history and, you know, Christian books and Baroque music and children's books. So even while I was a comics fan, for some reason, I was intrigued by Theodore Roosevelt and I started to collect material on him and then political material from the last century. And that was helped by collecting Puck and Judge magazines and became a nut about American history. So when all of that is tied together, when Pogo delved into politics, or Barnaby not so much, some commentary, or Little Abner did, I was tuned to it, and it either interested me, and I'd learn more about those wisecracks <laughs> or whatever, or vice versa. I was already primed to appreciate what they were saying and doing. Yeah, that somehow came early at the same time. But now, were, your politics were not necessarily the same as the artists that you're following at this point. Is that right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the same way most of Yeah, I'm, I'm on the right of the political spectrum. But through the years, most of my friends have been on the left. And I enjoy debating and learning the issues. You know, Theodore Roosevelt said about his definition of a conservative was anyone willing to take a progressive stand on a dead issue. And I would even debate and study dead issues from the Civil War, really, to the First World War was the period I just was most interested in and I would learn about and eat it up. American history, world history, I just, I do love it. And a lot of my books have been in history fields not really connected to cartoons and comics. And you were a history major in college, right? It was one of my majors, yeah. And American studies. And American studies, yeah. Do you feel like when you read a comic strip from a particular year or decade, it helps connect you to the psychology of that time more so than a history book would? Or do you feel like it's all just the same thing? No, I'm glad you're asking that question because I've made this point or tried to make the point many times in lectures and in writing and everything is that one of the great things about comics and cartoons, illustrations and political cartoons and social cartoons New Yorker cartoons and everything, is that cartooning is an art form that has to be universal. It has to be understood by the greatest common denominator of readers across the board, has to be understandable. There must be an immediacy because you're dead if you restrict your audience from the start. Fast forward from any group of cartoons or cartoonist work, decades or centuries, And you have in cartoons the best way to understand a time and a people and the issues 
and the mores, the fashions, the fads, more than PhD theses, more than charts and graphs. It's one reason I like cartoons and comics and long way of answering the question. Absolutely. I put myself back in those times. I allow myself to be taken back into those times and understand those people. I have a question for you. It's 1967. You're on college campus. How aware were you of Marvel at the time? And had you been a comic book reader also, or had you just been strictly comic strips all this time? And had you read things such as EC as a kid? I appreciate that question. It's one hole in my resume. You're talking about 67. The only Marvel and DC comics, mostly DC comics that I had in my collection were ones that my cousin read and would save for me. I had a lot of comic books, but I liked Disney, Warner Brothers. I liked the funny animal comics, Nancy, Little Lulu, all that stuff. Didn't much like the superheroes. Frankly, I thought they were silly. (laughs) I personally love that perspective because, I mean, me, I kind of started with superhero and Marvel as a kid. And then I feel like I've graduated to almost finding it a little silly and going towards strips and other things. But for you, you started with what feels to me as the more highbrow form of comic from the very beginning. So I find that really fascinating. And my mother was a huge comic strip fan. So all I got as a kid was, you know, this comic strip groove. And I didn't even get into comics until I was 10 or 11. But I loved comic strips first. So I I can certainly agree with you on that. Yeah, okay. I did come to appreciate them. And by the way, one thing that sort of confirmed my prejudice was that as I got to know more cartoonists, strip cartoonists and political cartoonists, and then eventually got to meet and know comic book artists. I think you guys will agree with me, and I guess it's not the case anymore, but it was very much the case that for a vast percentage of comic book artists, no matter how successful they were or how many covers they would see there, you know, on local newsstands or whatever, most comic book artists were frustrated strip artists. And you'd ask about the other, you know, big guys in the field and they'd say, oh, yeah, I love his work or this or that. But they would always say, but Kniff, that's the guy. Or Hal Foster. Oh, man, if I could draw like Foster or Alex Raymond. So that sort of made it easier for me to dismiss the superheroes. Now, eventually I went to work for Marvel. And but, you know, with the European books and all like that, of course, my perspective changed. I was just later to join that parade. That's all. So, Rick, you were a conservative in college in 67 during the Vietnam War era and all of that. And this was in D.C.? Is that where you were? American University, Washington, D.C. So you had to be at odds in some ways with all the people around you because you were at a point where liberals were running things in college in terms of the protest and different things. How was that? Not just in some ways. In every way. way. I was trying to be polite. Yeah, I know. You know, looking back on it, I have to confess, I mean, I think it's legitimate to say that I maybe have always been a bit of a contrarian, and I sort of liked being the only vote on the student senate against (laughs) this resolution, really, or allowing people coming to the uh, moratoriums to stay in the dorms and all like that, and I... But I'll tell you this, one thing where it did pay off, and I didn't mind being the, I had a sign on my door in the dorm saying token conservative, you know, and I guess (laughs) 
Those days, <laughs> during the Vietnam War and all the protests in Washington, D.C., the March on the Pentagon, all this stuff, and I loved it. It was, you know, I'm a political guy, and I did find a market. Two things happened. I was able to draw cartoons. My own school paper wouldn't run me. So what did I do? I went to Washington, D.C. I went to the American Conservative Union, and they ran my cartoons in their newsletter, which was nationwide. The ACU reined me in a little bit. I drew for National Review, Buckley's Magazine, and got to know him. So there was a benefit to being a pariah, you know. The leper colony turned out to be a great opportunity <laughs> for me. But the other thing in real life is, and, you know, joke about being token conservative and everything, after these marches on Washington and the sit-ins and the shutdowns, you know, the storming the dean's offices and all that stuff back in the 60s, when they would be what in those days called teach-ins, they'd always turn to Marshall to be the other voice in so-called debates. I mean, they weren't really fair debates. So none of you are old enough to know these names, but, you know, there was a Chicago 7. So I debated on stage or co-appeared with Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and David Dellinger, all these people. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, all right. So, you know, because they had no other stooge to put up there, you know, to try to make it look like a fair discussion. It was a kick for me, you know, and then talking with them all backstage and everything. But that honestly helped me sharpen my points of view and my debating abilities such as they were and all like that. That's about it. And then I got involved in electoral politics for a while into the mid-70s. But then I started to draw political cartoons and was an editor and such, so I couldn't do both things at that time. So, After about three years of being out of college and you were working as a journalist and a columnist and an editorial cartoonist, and it seemed like it was very politically focused, why did you switch back to comics from politics when you went to work with the syndicates? That's a great question, and it sort of illustrates the non-intentional random nature of my progress through life, if I can put it that way. I thought I'd stay in newspapers and political cartooning and writing a column all my career. And I worked for William Loeb, one of the great old-time newspaper editors, front-page editorials, all that stuff, like from the Hearst days. But here's what happened. I knew John Wheeler, who was a pioneer in newspaper syndication, Right before he died, I uh, knew him and then stayed very close with his widow. My paper was in Norwalk, Connecticut. They lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Neighbors of Maurice Sendak, by the way, who I got to know through T. Wheeler. But John had, when he died, he was an advisor at the United Features Syndicate because he had founded Bell and Bell McClure and then North American Newspaper Alliance. It was all merged into United Features. And Wheeler's widow, T. Wheeler, asked me if I've ever thought of going into syndication like her husband John had been. And I said, truthfully, no, but why not? I'd love to. And she arranged for me to meet Sid Goldberg, who was editor of United Features Syndicate. He passed away a few years ago, but he's the father of Jonah Goldberg, one of these talking head stooges you see on cable sure. news. And wasn't his wife the woman who persuaded Monica Lewinsky to... Give up the dress. You got it. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah. Big Tom Lipscomb and Lucienne Goldberg were the people who really connected those dots to make that scandal public. 
Yeah, Lucianne, and she runs a blog now. She does. She was also, by the way, the same year I was invited to, did dirty tricks on behalf of the Nixon campaign. I didn't do it. She did. By the way, the guy who tried to have me do it is in the news these days, Paul Manafort. So it's funny how life. That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. That, that is wow. A little bit of political junkies also. So we appreciate okay. that. Well, here we are, a little bit of a tangent. But in 72, when Nixon was running against McGovern or vice versa, and there were dirty tricks, as some people have heard of that year, Watergate and everything. But Paul Manafort, and I never knew if he worked for the National Republican National Committee or for whom, I don't know, Roger Stone probably, became his partner along with my friend Charlie Black. But he asked my girlfriend and I to meet him in a hotel room on the west side of Manhattan opposite the uh, where the cruise ships dock. And I'm sure he tried to recruit others, but he asked us if we wanted to, were willing to go to Miami with the Democrat National Committee was meeting convention. Remember in 68, there were the riots outside the Democrat convention in Chicago and the police went crazy clubbing people and all like this. It was a big black eye for the Democrats. And he wanted to recruit us, as I say, probably others, to go down and mingle with the crowds outside the Democrat convention in Miami and incite protests or get people angry or be good TV shots. He said, we don't want anyone hurt. I'm sure he wouldn't have minded, but just we want people to provoke. Well, my girlfriend then could have passed for a hippie, (laughs) but I was born looking like a suburban commuter or something. I never could have. (laughs) I never could have played that role. And there were other reasons I said no, but that was Paul Manafort. And, you know, fast forward to now. And uh, that's wild. And it's crazy. So you were you were in Miami at the time? No, no. At the I, com- okay. I lived in New Jersey. They would have no, but they, for the convention, they would have taken us down there. Now, by the way, this is backing up a little bit, but that's how I got into the newspaper business. Because when I was thinking of it, I went to my local paper, and as a congenital double dipper, <laughs> I, went, I went to the paper and I said, "Look, I'm going to be down." I have the opportunity to go to the Democrat convention, not as a delegate, but to be in the crowd. Would you like some stories written that I would send back? Local boy goes to convention. And the editor said, no, but we need a reporter. Do you want to take a test? And I said, well, okay, why not? And I know I did crummy on it, but she hired me anyway. And then I worked in Connecticut and then went to syndicate. So that's how that all started. (laughs) I was there, Rick, at the convention. I was 11 years old, and we were at the Fontaine Blue at the convention. Oh, gee. That's uh, amazing. That's a I, I have a picture of me wearing a little straw hat saying, <laughs> vote for Nixon. <laughs> vote for Nixon? Yeah. It, somebody was handing them out at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably what you would have been doing if you were there. Al and I were thrown by that comment, Jim. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, what's going on here? By the way, later in that campaign, in the 72 campaign, I was a state chairman in New Jersey of Young Americans for Freedom, the uh, Buckley Group. And there was a big rally in Hackensack, New Jersey, the uh, county seat. And McGovern was going to be there. He was there. And Henry Helstosky, the uh, local rep, Democrat, and Senator Harrison Williams was going to be there. And other big wigs I'm forgetting. It was a big rally. As YAF people, we were there handing out flyers and buttons against McGovern. 
dusk was settling in and this program had already begun and Senator Williams was later thrown out of office in the Abscam scandal, went to jail. But he wasn't there yet, so it was an empty seat. Oh, Ted Kennedy was there? I mean, it was all these bigwigs, you know? Was there anyone in Ted Kennedy's trunk at that time? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And weren't his clothes dry? I'm just curious. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please continue. (laughs) Not a problem. Anytime with those, uh, those flavor comments, it's all right. Well, speaking of trunks, I was going around the back of the courthouse to go to my car to get more buttons and flyers, right? And... There's a guy running towards me, and I recognize him as Senator Williams. And he's like, he's sort of trotting, you know, he knows he's late. And I said, oh, Senator Williams, there's an empty chair. They're waiting for you. Well, he didn't know whether I was, he didn't know anything about me. And he said, oh, oh, good. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm late. I, you know. So I started to trot along with him, and I still had some buttons in my pockets. And I said, wait a minute, you're going to go up. You're supposed to sit between Senator Kennedy and McGovern himself, and you're not wearing any buttons. He said, oh, yeah, you're right. So I took two buttons out and put them on his each lapel, and he said, thanks very much, and he scrambled up onto stage. And for about 40 minutes, he sat there with anybody but McGovern on one lapel and misgovern with McGovern on the other lapel until someone actually saw what the Democrat senator from New Jersey at a McGovern rally was wearing. So I was <laughs> gonzo gorilla. Wow. Political tactics. As far as comic strips, United Features Syndicate, now you knew people that worked there from your teenage years. Is that correct? Yeah. I knew some of the personnel, production manager and others, yeah, because I would visit. And Charles Schultz, was he one of the people you had already known before? No, I had not met him yet. Fan letters is all. I had not met him yet. Was it weird having editorial say over comic artists that you admired before going into that? Was that an awkward position for you, or was it like a fish-to-water type of situation? I appreciate that question. It was like a fish-to-water. I I was not intimidated. I just really loved the opportunity, and maybe it's some arrogance. I don't think it came across as arrogant, but I... Listen, for years of collecting strips and reading them, either subliminally or talks with my father or whatever... There would be strips where I would say, I would critique. I'd say, why does the whole eight weeks of the story end this way? Or it doesn't make sense that that character acted that way because last year she did, you know. So I sort of fell into it, and I'm going to save Jim from asking another embarrassing story. But you learn a lot of this is on-the-job training. And when I was an editor at United... And then eventually, you know, two other syndicates, but at United early on, this was not known to me, but it became evident really quickly that Schultz had gone 13 months without signing a new contract. It was a very delicate situation. There was a lot he was unhappy with. Eventually, he got control of all his licensing and marketing. But I didn't know this stuff behind the scenes, but it was always told to me by various people at the syndicate. Don't bother Sparky. Don't call Schultz. It's never important enough to bother him, and he's flinty and all like this. Well, huh? Okay. one time there was a Sunday gag, and I found it a few weeks ago downstairs, a Sunday gag, where Charlie Brown is the pitcher, and Lucy has an umbrella out in center field. And he said, put down the umbrella. How can you play center and have an umbrella? And I guess she said, it's it might rain or something like that. Well, anyway... 
He throws a pitch. He looks up. Of course, someone hits a fly ball. And the baseball comes down, pluck, right on the spine of the umbrella. She spikes it. And then she calmly walks to the pitcher's mound, flips the umbrella, flips the ball to him. And as with his gag construction, the joke is always the second to the last panel. It's always where the character looks at the reader. And no one's ever analyzed this way, but that's the same gag construction that wasn't every strip, but most strips Trudeau used and others. And there would be commentary or the character would look out at the reader or something like that. So anyway, in that Sunday page, Charlie Brown looks at the reader and he says, I can't even manage good. And I thought, well, we're not supposed to call Charles Schultz, but I'm going to save him 10,000 letters from angry English teachers. And I asked the bullpen to change it. He, I, where Charlie Brown would say, I can't even manage well. So we fast forward now to a couple of weeks later when they've cut all the mats and metal printing plates. That's how the strips were sent out in those days. It would send out, in Peanut's case, 2,000 sets of mats and zinc printing plates and color proofs to every client newspaper. And when he got his set, he just flipped. He was flinty. Wow. And he called up the syndicate, and I was one of the last he spoke to, but it was the president, the vice president, the general manager, the editor, Sid Goldberg. He talked to everyone, and it finally got to me. And, okay, I finally, I did get to know him very well, and we collaborated on things. He wrote for my couple of my books and everything. And I met him many times, the nicest guy in the world. But on that day, he was pissed. Wow. And this is the way he put it. And it sounds egotistical, but it's just truthful. He said, Rick, do you think I got where I am today, where Peanuts is what it is today, because I don't know how to write a gag? <laughs> Boom. I'm sorry. I don't know. And I didn't get fired. You know, there were meetings and all like that. My motivation was right. And I was sort of able to throw it back at the syndicate and saying, well, you told us we're not supposed to bother Sparky. But you know what they had to do? They had to redo that page, reshoot it, and send out special delivery, express mail today, the paper mache mats, the printing plates, color proofs to every client newspaper, you know, overnight. And I'm sure they took a big hit for that. So there is an aspect of wanting to keep the successful comic strip artists happy. Is that right? Sure. Less so today because cartoonists come into the game more in control of their futures. Contracts have changed a bit. But back in those days, you know, it's like before free agency in baseball. They controlled you. And if you signed a contract to do a strip, you would do it forever. Or when they wanted the strip to die it would die. So if you had enough clout, like Schultz did, like Al Cap did, like Kniff, who left Terry at its prime and went and did this Steve Canyon, there were few exceptions, but pretty much you were a field slave. Well, let me ask you this. Was his contention being that a kid would talk that way? He never explained it to me. Believe me, I was not in a position to say, no, prove it. What are you talking about? I demand to know. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know, and that's not what you're asking. But no, he didn't explain it. <laughs> to tell you the truth, my guess was he would have flunked a grammar test. He probably thought that was correct. I don't know. Wow. So maybe he felt like it appealed to more of a blue-collar sensibility of some kind. That could be the case. And the cartoonist, the greatest at that was Johnny Hart. 
because I got to know him and I would visit him and I got to know his assistants and all like this. Johnny Hart with BC and the Wizard of Id. Okay, he didn't spend much time on the drawing, but that was fine. It's not a criticism. It's a description of his art. But he spent more time on every gag, not coming up with a gag, but the right wording, which word to bounce in his language, which one to put in boldface. And when I was his editor, I was not the only guy he called. I was just in his informal jury. But he would read out a strip and read me the last panel. And in his voice, he'd emphasize which word, which is funnier, which was funnier. He was great at that. That was his genius. And that's an important part of strips, trying to simulate the language and patterns of the reader's because like Seeger with Popeye's speech, it was clearly meant to engage the reader in not proper English. So it seems like it's probably something like that. There's a lot of that. It's very, it's all in context or should be. And comic strip languages are very idiosyncratic and should be. So Rick, continuing to talk about syndicates and things. In 1976, Maurice Horn's The World Encyclopedia of Comics was published. Yeah. And there, towards the end of the book, was a history of newspaper syndication by Richard Marshall. And in that article, at the end, it says, Only King, Field, and NEA have full-time comic editors, and these executives are burdened with space restrictions, corporate pressures, and a myriad of non-artistic considerations. You had worked for all of these guys at that point, between 1974 and 1977, right? Yeah, when I wrote that... I did entries for that encyclopedia while I was still at United and maybe at the New York News Syndicate, which came next. I know I had finished that work when I went out to Field Enterprises, a publisher's newspaper syndicate in Chicago. Or Field, yeah. My work for the syndicate was sort of in the middle of that rant. <laughs> so you were actually commenting about your own job at the time that this was coming out. Is that right? I guess so. Maybe it was some sort of a salary demand or something like that. <laughs> I just thought that was awesome when I realized the timing of it. That was ballsy. Yeah, you know, I forgot having written that. Honestly, I did. But by the way, you had to be a crusader in those days because I do remember that most syndicates did not have comics editors. They had editors who would do the columns and the puzzles and the strips so it was really – they were really traffic managers. It was really making sure the dates – they came in on time and the, the words were spelled correctly. It was not much respect for strips. And it was the beginning of all the shortages in the 70s, gas shortage and everything. But there was a newsprint shortage. So newspapers were shrinking strips, cutting them. I remember when I was at Chicago Tribune Syndicate, Chester Gould designed on his own and drew them newspaper ads that the syndicate could use, if not for in the newspaper, but to send to the editors saying comics are the only thing you can offer the public that television cannot offer. Whether it's exactly true or not, he was making a great point. He went out of his way to do this voluntarily. The syndicate never thanked him, much less ever used them. It was the time when syndicates were really starting to denigrate cartoonists and not care about the art form, much less the commercial side of it. They were happy to license the characters. So, you know, I felt like a little bit of a crusader. And I made my – at uh, meetings of the Newspaper Comics Council and such, I made a pain in the ass of myself to bring this up and scold local editors who would come into the conventions, their conferences and everything. But the syndicates were all happy to just – 
kill their own babies, frankly. It sounds crazy, but it's how it was. Wow, interesting. You, you sounded pessimistic in that essay, but did it get better than you expected? or were I, And I think I know the answer to this. Or did it get far worse than you even could have anticipated? You know, I'd say a little bit of both, and I'm not equivocating. I am, I am equivocating. But the strips continued to decline. I remember the couple stories. The first book, I, one of the first books I did, I forget the order of them, but I did a book on the history of the Blondie Strip at its 50th anniversary. And I got to know Dean Young and Mort Walker, who had middle belly, who didn't know Dean Young at that time, said, next time you see Dean Young, ask him why he does the longer Sunday pages and like little short stories and all the characters and all the puppies. He says he's making the rest of us look bad. I mean, Mort used to say, you know, he'd, he would joke about it, but there's a reason you make jokes about certain things. There's truth behind it. You know, cartoons should get to a certain level where they can afford to hire assistants and they can golf all day. Now, it made it very easy for cartoonists who wanted to cruise to point to the newspaper shortage and the shrinkage. Because all of a sudden you saw a lot of strip cartoonists and story continuity cartoonists doing panels with full faces so they didn't have to draw backgrounds, and dropping details so they could golf more, but also to make smaller reproductions more readable. You know what I'm saying? It was a handmaiden. These two things were going, and they hurt strips. And Al Cap hated this, and it's one reason he quit. I mean, low sales were another. But he drew some strips where all the characters were hunched over, and, you know, the comment was, I think this was in-house, not in newspapers. And he would hand it out, send them out to editors. But there would be the punchline about this is the only way Mr. Cap can draw us because there's no space for us to stand up anymore. You know, this kind of stuff. And Johnny Hart did some gag about we might as well be on stamps because we're small as a postage stamp now, that sort of thing. So the infection that hit newspaper publishers, the newspaper editors started to hit the cartoonists, too. If they were lucky, they'd retain their space and their rates, but they could draw smaller, fewer details, easier days. It was really a lack of self-respect. Now, comics have not disappeared. The other half of your question is, I think part of it was the technology where the color printing actually became a little better. So comics sort of found a crutch, Sunday comics. And then also, Jim, I think part of it was whether it was Marvel and DC or the syndicates, that the licensing mavens and merchandising people swooped in and the tails started to wag the dogs. That it happened that strips were maintained because of either the licensing activity or the anticipation of licensing and merchandising. King Features, for instance, kept a lot of strips alive only because they hoped they could make a deal in Europe someday for reprint books. Oh, okay. They hoped they could sell these characters for an ad for toothpaste or whatever. There were a lot of strips that were kept alive for that reason. Oh, that's really interesting because it mirrors what's happening today with comic books, where it's the studios and the film projects that are keeping the books actually being published more than any other aspect, and it's certainly any sales aspect. Yeah. So that's a really good parallel, I think. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Yeah. How do you feel about Calvin and Hobbes not licensing for anything? I have my own take on this, but I've been curious to ask you for years. No, as a fan, I sort of regret it. But as a 
scholar and friend of Watterson and such, I admire him. Yeah, I'm pretty much on the same. But I also feel like you have all those peeing stickers on the back of people's trucks. You yeah. know, and I, I feel like that would have been prevented if he had had a deal with, say, Determined Productions or somebody like that. No, I don't think so. Someone still would have tried it. But if he had another deal already, they would have sued right. the licensing company. But his syndicate was willing to sue in those cases anyway. Oh, good. I, I did not know that. That makes me very happy. Yeah. And it makes me less upset with him for not licensing. Because yeah. I'm one of those few people that wanted to license for protection reasons, not for fan re- I mean, I would have loved Calvin and Hobbes action figures. Don't get me wrong. That's good to know. I, I did not know that. Yeah. And Bill, he stopped the syndicate. They wanted to take action in a lot of those cases. He said, oh, what the heck? Let it happen. It's not going to die out. He was, I'm sure he was bothered somewhat by it when the drawings would be bad, offensive, but he just didn't want to raise the dust on that. He didn't want to draw attention to it. It's been a while, but I have a sheaf of letters he wrote me, and i got to tell you, one of the kicks of my career, of career, my life, was that occasionally I got to know a lot of my heroes, these guys, well enough that I would get random calls or random letters from some of these people. For instance, Schultz would call my house. And my wife would say, Sparky Schultz is on the phone. Is that Charles? Yeah, that's Charles Schultz. <laughs> and a lot of times he would just want to talk about some strip he read as a kid. And he'd say, what was the name of that? Or who was the artist on that? And then we'd talk. And he would then start talking about his view of the business, the current strips. And there was a lot he didn't like, but he never you know, made that public. So I felt privileged. And Watterson would write me these notes someday after we're all dead, I guess they might be published, where he would explain why he didn't allow licensing or merchandising or, you know, his view on those situations. And for instance, I mean, this I can talk about because maybe he did go public. I'm not sure. But one of his favorite strips growing up was Pogo. Yeah, yeah. He adored the strip, the artwork, the ethos, everything, everything, everything. You can see it in his layouts, too, I think. Very good, yeah, you can. And the fact that he, now he didn't use the brush 100% like Kelly did, but he loved his brush work and all like that. And peanuts, growing up peanuts, too. But he hated the fact that there were animated cartoons, Charlie Brown Christmas and all like that. He said, one thing that makes comics special is that we, the readers, provide the voices for those characters. And we think we know how they would act when that gag ends and what their world is like outside those four panel lines. And he said, I don't want a half an hour on TV, an animated cartoon where they really don't look like the characters and they don't sound like I think they talk. He said, I hate that. And I don't want to do that to my readers. And since he was making scads of money, it was never his motivation. He was able to have integrity on that and see it through. He even regretted the one year there was a calendar that came out and he sent me the painting, the cover of that calendar, but he even stopped that. The reprint books were one thing, but everything else he wouldn't allow. And I like that. You know, there were no action figures or plush toys or Calvin condoms or whatever would have happened. You know? <laughs> I'll buy those. I'll buy those. Yeah, I would have bought those. That's too. a collectible. In fact, Alex had a few bootleg ones. I must, <laughs> must ask. <laughs> Sorry, Alex. Gave you away. 
Now, Rick, this is a question I've been dying to talk to you about. Jim mentioned the World Encyclopedia of Comics and Maurice Horn. Could yeah. you tell the listeners what that was and how you became involved in it? Because as a kid, I have to tell you, I was 13 and got this for Christmas. Yeah. And the name Rick Marshall ever since was, and Jim still has his copy. I still have my copy. But that's where I learned of Rick Marshall. And ever since then, anything that had your name on it was like a seal of approval for me to buy or pick up. So how you came to meet Maurice Horn and how that whole thing, you know, started. Because he was French. Am I right? I believe he still is. <laughs> oh, he's still alive. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I think he you mean is. he's still French. The funny thing about Horn is that you've heard the phrase "he's his own worst enemy." Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, you can say that about Maurice Horn, except that maybe 150 or 200 people around the world would say, "Not while I'm alive." <laughs> they are. They want to be his worst enemy. He has more ex friends. <laughs> more ex friends than I met him at. I started to go to. Comic conventions in the late 60s in New York, Phil Suling conventions and such. And I had old stuff with me to trade and barter and all like that. And I just met him at one of those conventions. And we kept in touch and would trade and talk. And he was like a sponge. You know, he had worked on the show at the Louvre in Paris, where actually the Museum of Decorative Arts, part of the Louvre, the landmark show back in the early 60s at Pierre Coubry and Claude Moliterni and others worked on. And then the book, the catalog that was done in France was published here by Crown Publishers, a history of the comic strip with all those frog names on them. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I was aware of, of Maurice. So because he loved American strips, he was very interested to talk to me about what I knew and who I knew and all this business and everything. And he was going to do this encyclopedia. Would I be interested to write for it? Now, I had no real writing credits at that time. A couple of these magazines, okay. But I knew where bodies were buried, and he trusted my writing skills, or he would be editor. And he would ask other people, if you have that book, you know, uh, Bill Blackbeard and Joe Brancatelli. I would do the strips, old strips, no, contemporary strips. And Joe Brancatelli would do the comics, and he would do the European comics and all like that. There was something like 12 or 15 writers. Mark Evanier would do the animation entries, and he paid us all $10 an entry. He was a crazy editor. He wrote us hard, but it was great discipline for me. I was really honored to be asked to do it. It was a real book. And the only interference he played with all of us was he would give us lectures about Diderot, the inventor of the encyclopedia form in Europe and France centuries before. And we should not just stick to dates and facts, our opinion. Well, okay, so a lot of us did. And we talk about the high period of someone's art or writing or maybe a decline in the hands of ghosts or something like that. But even as a newcomer, I was pretty discreet and diplomatic. We all were except for Maurice himself. And he would savage people like crazy. So when the book came out, it did well commercially. It sold to a lot of libraries. But the cartooning profession, the National Cartoonist Society and such, was very unhappy. Because they felt it was a criticism? Yes, and it was, frankly, it was a lot of cheap criticism. He really savaged Al Andreola, for instance, who did Kerry Drake and 
And it was needless. He didn't have to do that. So he became, for a while, he was the darling of the professional cartoonist community, the Newspaper Comic Council and the National Cartoonist Society. And Milton Kniff even drew a character in Steve Canyon, Monsieur Toot, get it horn. And he looked like him with that ridiculous nose and everything. But overnight, he went to being a pariah and really savaged and all like that. And I was told, Rick, if you want to get anywhere in this business, comics or whatever, and your association with them. And I was told this in Europe, too. I started to go to conventions. So everybody felt this way. Very much disliked in Europe after a little while, yeah. And I said, you know, until he does something to harm me, I'm not going to ditch a friend. And I'll work with him even. But so I was maybe being a little suicidal with that. Well, eventually he did turn on me, too, like he turned on (laughs) everyone. But he did things in that encyclopedia. And, Jim, you've got that copy there. If you look in the – is that the one volume or the two volume? This is the first volume. It's a 1976 one. Okay. At the same time, it was a two-volume edition that came out with more material, my history. Oh, this is the one volume. Okay. I'm not sure if his essay, his introduction is in both or just in the two-volume, but he wrote, frankly, a brilliant essay on what is the comic strip and the art form and the integrity and the language and structure of the comics. I mean, it's brilliant. But he uses an illustration, an example of Crazy Cat. Anyway, if you read the caption, it was Crazy Cat. George Harriman, Crazy Cat. But if you looked at the drawing, it was really a Bobby London dirty duck. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Bobby London will love this. I will have to tell him this personally. That's that's hilarious. He's aware of it. And there were many other illustrations where artists were misidentified. Years were wrong. Strips were effed up. So... He's a good analyst, but a bad, he doesn't have an eye, he doesn't have a sense, you know. We all have different strengths. Ron Goulart, for instance, is a brilliant, what I call him a ghost hunter. He can spot ghost artists and assistants and all like that, the best of anyone. So we all have strengths. Bill Blackbeard was a good collector and anthologist, but frankly, a crummy historian <laughs> in my view. I read all his Roy Crane reprints of Wash Tubs. I've read every single one. And then I read all of your Seeger stuff. So it's interesting. When he wrote for Nemo, after a while, it drove me crazy. I would run out of blue pencils correcting his copy because, <laughs> for instance, he would write with Popeye. One of the things with Popeye, he would write about when it got less violent, let's say, fewer fights. He would say that was the result of Marion Davies' objections, you know, William Randolph Hearst's mistress. So I'd call him up when I got him. I said, Bill, this is brilliant. This is a great, you know, how Hearst was involved. And he would override his editors. And was, of course, Marion Davies, who was, what, a Puritan because she was sleeping with a newspaper mogul. I didn't quite get it. I said, so how do you know this? Do you have letters? Or he said, oh, no, it's obvious. (laughs) (laughs) i said what do you mean it's obvious he said well it's a woman's point of view well anyway so (laughs) that that, multiply that by a hundred and bill blackbeard was not the greatest historian but he knew his dates and he was collecting like a vacuum cleaner i mean he was great at that but anyway so with maurice with all his misidentified illustrations then he hired me to do the collect the illustrations for the book he did on comics of the American West and women in the comics. And then when he did the World Encyclopedia of Cartoons, 
which was everything but strips, huh? animation, politicals. He just flat out hired me. I wrote 350 entries in that, but I put together almost all the American illustrations. So Maurice did know his shortcomings, but that's how I started in writing, really. That's amazing. Well, now, this was also the thing that made you go international, wasn't it? I mean, after this, you were invited to a lot of things overseas, a lot. I mean, this really made you the guy we know today in a lot of ways, wouldn't you say? Are you talking about as far as world recognition, Bill? Is that what you're talking about? Well, I'm actually talking about, like, you started getting invites to international festivals. You started going over there. I mean, this is when Rick became the Rick Marshall of comics that we know today, I think. I mean, I may be wrong and maybe overreaching here, but I'd love to hear your impression on this. That's about it, and it fits chronologically. I went to my first convention, the Comic Salon at Luca, Italy, in 1978. And you're right, it was some writing. You know, by that point also, I was writing for cartoonist profiles, magazines, and some other outlets. But yeah, it was that book and others. So I went to Luca in 78. I was working for Marvel at that time. And I went because they invited me, but also Stanley wanted me to scout, or I convinced him that I should scout for European artists to draw for Marvel and to work for this new magazine we cooked up, Epic. But that's a good point. So my name did get around that way. And I've been to Europe now more than 60 times, and many of them were for comics festivals and book fairs and such, yeah. Were they for some of the other things you were into, like your hymn research or music research? Yes, I would go over. I've been to two wine harvest festivals in Germany just for the for the wine aspect. And I went over to Europe for two music festivals, a Bach organ cycle and others. So, yeah, I've been for different various reasons, yeah. How did Maurice Horn burn his bridge with you? The guy's flakier in a snowstorm. Maurice had so many... <laughs> what he would call enemies in Europe. He fell out with all of his collaborators on that landmark show in Paris. A lot of it was just professional jealousy. A lot of it was that he tried to claim more credit for that show than he was really due. We would have lunch or dinner in New York fairly frequently, and many times he would open the conversation by saying, so tell me... What are my enemies saying about me now? <laughs> I mean, so that's not only being paranoid, but it's loving being paranoid. Right. Right. He would relish these controversies. And I mean, he's also got something of an ego. He would, you know, he'd, it's an old joke, but, you know, it was like two hours he'd be talking about himself endlessly and what he did and how, what his rivals are saying about him and all like this. And then he would say something like, but enough talk about me for two hours. Tell me, what do you think of my latest book? You know, that's it. <laughs> what do you think about me? <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the situation. We had this, you know, I continued to work with him and even defend him to people. But eventually I went to work for, this is after Marvel and Disney. I went to work for Dargo, the French comics publisher. Asterix and uh, Valerian and such. Lucky Luke. And because a former French comics historian at that time had an editorial job with Dargo in Paris, and the guy's name is Claude Moliterni, since died, and he was one of that 
group, the group called Sosolid in Paris that Alain René, the French director, was associated with it. And Pierre Coupery, who I think is the world's greatest historian, comics historian, and some others. But Maurice fell out with all of them, but he was particularly upset with Claude Moliterni. He just had it out for him. In my job with Dargo in the U.S., I had no association with him, no reason to ever talk to him. He just worked for the parent company uh, an ocean away. But Maurice called me to his apartment in Manhattan, and he said, you're going to work for Dargo, and Moliterni works for them. Frankly, my ears used to glaze over every time he'd talk about his controversies. I didn't know what he was talking about. But he said, you can either work for Dargo, where my enemy works, or you can stay associated with not both. I said, are you crazy? I've got to feed my kids. I had three kids, you know. So I said, bye-bye. And after that, he just sniped like crazy. And needless to say, we never worked together. But he would badmouth me to everyone about being a crummy historian. Or I don't know what he said. But I see. He had this narcissism and a bit of vengeance, and he relished the dark side of it. Yeah. And he would go on and find new writers. Dennis Weppman, who was a good guy and okay historian, and Bill Crouch, who had been a friend of mine, who was not a good historian, but he was willing to mail the stuff in. So, uh, you know, he kept on doing what he was doing, which, by the way, a lot of people think he's passed away. And I asked someone who knows him recently, and evidently he's still alive and he's doing translation work or something, but has not worked in comics for decades. Wow. So, Rick, I, I have a couple of encyclopedia-related questions, and then Bill's going to transition us to the Marvel stuff, because that's an area, obviously, some of your listeners want to hear about. In terms of the encyclopedia, and you did, like, about 350 entries into it, was there any entry that you were especially pleased that you got to write or you liked how it turned out? And were there any that you wish you could even now go back and rewrite because you weren't happy with what you did? Man, that's a great question. If you had asked me that about 20 years ago, I could answer it better because I'm sure I can answer that about more recent books. I did a couple country music encyclopedias, and there I remember being particularly pleased with the Merle Haggard entry and things like that. <laughs> um, with this book, all I can say is there were some that when I wrote them or when the book was published, yes, I was proud. Some were just like police blotter reports of facts and dates, you know. I'll tell you this. One thing I would call back was in the first encyclopedia, the two-volume version, there was a history of newspaper syndication. It wasn't in the one-volume book. And a lot of the facts on that, I relied on material given me by Ernie McGee, the collector I mentioned six hours ago, who was an old-timer and was collecting when he was a kid in the teens and knew some of these cartoonists. And I trusted him. And I didn't double-check. And, for instance, he claimed he himself drew a few weeks of Slim Jim. Well, he didn't. He wished he had, but he didn't. And then there were some other attributions, mainly attributions, artists who drew things who didn't and things like that. So I wish I had – I would do that better now and correct myself, correct my source, and I should have. And now some people know some of those facts, but in those days, I figured when McGee died, everything had died with him, you know, all that information. So that – call back. But other pieces, no, I think I'm pretty, I can say this without, I mean, it may sound egotistical, but I think we, if any of us are active in life and do things in our chosen fields, it's going to happen that occasionally you'll write something that you think 
holds up, that stands up. And there are some things I write where maybe there's a portion of it. I'll think, well, okay, I ace that. Everything else has been just the facts, ma'am, until now. But I can't, you know, with analysis or whatever. And I, there's some things I'm pretty proud of. And yes, some entries, but I can't. Uh, the only other question I had before we move on was, and this is the chronological one. At this point, when this was coming out and you were, let's say, you would still be working at the syndicates, is this the time that you were also first starting to write polychromatic effulgence at the buyer's guide? My gosh, you're right. Absolutely, yes. I forgot about that. Because that's nowhere, and I figured this, but I wanted to confirm that that's when it was. Yeah, that's right. I volunteered to write that. I subscribed to that because, you know, I was collecting, but I thought there wasn't enough about old strips, and I volunteered to write that. And I eventually transferred it over to the Comics Journal, but yeah, that would be about that time. That's right. Okay. I just wanted to confirm that. That's what I thought my timeline said. You know, we could talk about these early days for the entire episode, but our listeners would kill us, literally. They're ready to kill us. They have knives. They have pistols. They have, you know, they might even have assault rifles. I'm not even sure. And we won't go into that. But they want to hear about your move to Marvel in 77 and your important work there. How did you end up at Marvel? And if it's okay with you, I'll just ask you to tell us about your entire career experience from the time you were hired until you left. I'm happy to do that, Bill, for two reasons. One is it's part of this flow. But also because it's not really out there. And as a matter of fact, some mistakes are out there, including in some, I don't know if they're blogs or columns or whatever. Jim Shooter's been writing his autobiography or was for a while, episode by episode or whatever. It was also a guy who's kind of, now that I think of it, sort of like a very tall American version of Maurice Horn. He said so many, <laughs> so many bridges burned behind him. <laughs> But I read once, and I, I don't know whether it's worth it to counter all this, but he said I was hired to do such and such and work. The, the reason I was hired, which he has not talked about, was when I was comics editor at Field Newspaper Syndicate in Chicago. Publishers Hall, Publishers Newspaper Syndicate, they kept acquiring other syndicates and changing their name. The president of the syndicate, Dick Sherry, was always very eager to hire foreign cartoonists. Now, his real motivation was not so much that he loved the cartoons of France or Denmark or Australia. Well, it was a way also that he could do annual or semi-annual trips around the world at the syndicate's <laughs> expense to have creative conferences with these cartoonists, you know. So we talked about starting a magazine that would be on the style of the European comics magazines, like Linus, if you know that, or Eureka, yes. that were part strip reprints and part nerdy fan stuff, like interviews with cartoonists and some historical essays. And there were several in Europe, several in each of the active countries. As it took shape, and I still have the mock-ups of the issues, because we talked about it, it would have been co-produced by Field Publishers Syndicate, with me as the editor of the magazine, and co-produced with Stan Lee and Marvel. Marvel would have somehow been involved creatively or distribution or whatever. So we had several meetings in New York and several in Chicago where our office was. You and Stan Lee did? Yes. I don't understand French. I'm sorry, that was my Stan Lee impersonation. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that in there. 
well, if you're a true believer, you would, you know, just give everyone a nickname. You know? <laughs> I wanted to be Frenchie Lee all my life. Frenchie okay. Lee. <laughs> I swear he was ready to buy a beret. Anyway, Stan was really high on this, and I don't know how it would have come out or anything. And the chief financial backer, I don't know chief, but a big backer was going to be, believe it or not, Johnny Hart, BC. So – as I say, I still have the mock-up we made, and the title of the magazine was going to be Grog, G-R-O-G, because all these magazines had titles that meant nothing. Yeah, like Foom or whatever. Yeah, there you go. And Grog was his crazy character in BC, this monster-type thing that only yelled Grog and would make the mountains shake and everything. Well, it never happened, but we had meetings, we had mock-up versions of the magazine, you know, in a baseball way, it was maybe rounded first and halfway to second, but we had meetings and it could have happened. It would have been fun, but it never did happen. But in any event, from that association and my connection with, because of that, European comics, we would have run a lot of them in there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I got to know Stan from those meetings and from our correspondence and our shared enthusiasms and everything. So when I left the syndication world and was starving, one of the periods of my life when I was starving, I looked up Stan again and applied for a job at Marvel, either to revive that magazine idea or to work on some other new projects. And I wrote him. I said, frankly, I'm not a superhero fan, so maybe you're thinking of some new. And as it turns out, I was hired to be editor of the magazine line and then eventually Epic and everything. So that's the way it happened. So... He was my connection and how I got the job offer and wound up at Marvel. So it's a little different than Shooter's point of view. And my first few weeks, I was actually in Shooter's office. Hold that thought right there. Rick Marshall, this is awesome. We're about to get into your Marvel phase. Stay tuned, everybody, for the next episode of part two of the Rick Marshall interview here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast. <laughs>